Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Dave Weekly, who's a founder and CEO and is a veteran three, three times tech CEO, season product management leader at Google and Facebook and has more than 35 years of technical experience. Uh, he's an investor in, in 60 plus startups and is an award-winning mentor, founder and board member at uh, Hack Dojo. Uh, and he's also started three venture vehicles. Uh, and uh, he started three companies, Works, Ohana, and has uh, recently started MedQuarter. Uh, uh, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, um, so you know, what, what made you uh, get into this crazy world of startups and uh, what made you start uh, your first company, which is PB Works? So when I was starting my first company, it was for me a desire to better understand the world through the lens of business. I had been involved in computer programming since I was very, very young. I uh, started programming at five and then came out here to the Bay Area to attend Stanford University and get my CS degree. Um, I was working in my second job here in the Bay Area after college, and I realized that with another few decades, I'd become a better computer programmer, but that that actually wasn't going to be enough for me anymore, and that I wanted to understand more about the world than just how to become a really good programmer. So I thought about going back to school and getting my PhD in computer science and talked with a bunch of people who had done that and concluded that wouldn't be a good use of my time. Uh, I then thought, well, an important part of how the world works is business, and I don't understand very much about business, so maybe I could go to business school instead. And I talked to a lot of people who had gotten their MBAs. Okay. And the advice I got from them was that it's, it's a fantastically fun time to get an MBA. Nobody I talked to regretted getting an MBA, but they said uh, pretty universally, if what you're trying to learn is how business really works and how to start a business, the best possible way that you could educate yourself on that is to just go ahead and start a business. And I said, okay, okay well, that seems like pretty good advice. So I quit my job as a software engineer and I went to go start my company. And a lot of my friends said, what are you doing? Uh, you, you have no training in business. You didn't take any business courses at all in college. You don't have any entrepreneurs in your family. Like, uh, what makes you think you're going to be successful? And the answer is, well, I'm going to learn something. Worst case, I'm going to learn a lot about business. And that was really my goal at the start. So I, I started working on a bunch of different business ideas, just um, there in my dorm room, uh, powered off of uh, credit card debt and, <laughs> and, and a handful of sympathy checks from my parents to make sure that I didn't starve to death. Um, but it was just working through a bunch of different ideas. And then one of them that I came up with one weekend and put out there uh, pretty quickly took off. So uh, I started focusing on that and built that into PBWiki, which was the world's first private wiki host. Uh, grew that up to about 4 million people a month using the service. Uh, ultimately, a team of 30 people full-time and raised around uh, $10 million of venture capital. Um, we can get into what happened with that. It's actually still running more than 15 years later after I started in my bedroom. But it became clear that it was going to be more than a lemonade stand, but less than an empire. Uh, because being the king of the global private wiki market was actually a, a smaller mountain to be a king of than I had anticipated. So I uh, took a brief stint as an entrepreneur in residence at Trinity Ventures. 
and then started my next company, which got acquired by Facebook, spent some time at Google, and now I'm doing my third company here in my garage in Silicon Valley. Awesome. You've got a fascinating uh, you know, journey. Uh, you, you were working with PV Works for a long time. So, so is PV Works very similar to what, what uh, Wikipedia is, is what it is? So the concept is the same. The concept is that of a wiki. And the, the idea of a wiki is it's a web page that anyone who has permission can go ahead and edit without knowing uh, a whole lot about HTML codes or programming um, or, or to have to use separate tools. It's all right there in your web browser. So Wikipedia is an example of building an encyclopedia with wiki technology. What we did is we made wiki technology available to small groups. So anybody could sign up for a wiki for their own group and password protect it very, very simply. And then anyone from the group could edit any of the pages on the wiki or add new pages, upload files, et cetera. So it was a very easy way for a group of people to collaborate. Got it, and, and, and who runs uh, that company? Are, are you still part of the board uh, of PBWorks? I'm not involved anymore, but I had hired the CEO, Jim Groff, after we grew up the company to a certain size. Jim had sold his last company to Oracle for a couple hundred million dollars and felt he could do better with uh, PBWiki. So the, the two of us ran it together, kind of hand in hand, basically, myself responsible for engineering and product and himself responsible for marketing, uh, sales and support. And then uh, we did that for a number of years. And then I, I ducked out to go do my next thing. Got it. Uh, so you know, uh, last couple of years, I've been I've been quite interested into investing into startups, and and, and what I what I realized is that you you've traded three different uh, VC firms, uh, and uh, you, you know you you focused on uh, one of the vertical, which is Mexican dot uh, dot VC, uh, focusing on Mexican based internet startups, uh, and. Uh, uh, and if you are, uh, uh, and there's a drone.vc and neuron.vc. So, so what made you start uh, different VC uh, VC vehicles? And you know, uh, uh, and uh, are you still working on these on these venture funds? Yeah. So right now, I'm 100% focused on my startup. In doing a startup is a lot of work. There's a lot of risk. Pretty much all startups are, are likely to fail. Uh, and it takes a lot of luck and a lot of hard work and a lot of insight to, to get them to not fail. So I'm really focused on my startup right now. But okay. those three different VC vehicles I put together because in each of those three cases, for very different reasons, I saw an opportunity to go after a uh, rapid growth market that the rest of the investment community hadn't yet seen the, the opportunity in, in, in that market. So for instance, for Mexican VC, I was, um, through a series of coincidences, <clears throat> I'm not actually Mexican, Mexican by heritage or anything like that. Um, right. I happened to connect with the Mexican startup community and I saw that there were fantastic engineers, wonderful designers who were working on real problems. And I got to get to know the Mexican economy a bit, which is actually pretty large. It's uh, over 150 million people live there um, just south of the U.S., and, and people in the U.S. don't often talk about the, the Mexican econ, uh, economy or economic opportunities down there. And they certainly don't spend much time talking about Mexican startups. So I was down there at a startup conference and was just really impressed by the, the quality and quantity of the startups that I was seeing. And then I got to know some of the indigenous investors who were there in Mexico investing in Mexican um, startups. And I was very uh, disappointed 
by the quality, the sophistication, and the, the usefulness of those investors. So with the combination of uh, basically no Silicon Valley investment coming into Mexican startups and relatively poor indigenous investment available, I was like, wow, if I were to come down here and offer reasonable terms, uh, Silicon Valley style terms to the startups that are here in Mexico, I could get the best startups in the country. And that's going to be worth a lot. Um, so that's why I went and put together Mexican VC. And I, had, to be clear, it, it wasn't just me. I had great help uh, here in the U.S. from uh, Lisa Seaman and down in Mexico City from two incredibly hardworking partners, uh, Cesar Salazar and Santiago Zavala, uh, who really uh, put in an unbelievable amount of work to help uh, connect and unite the, the, the whole of the, the Mexican startup ecosystem. By, by throwing all kinds of events and uh, opening a space actually for people to do co-working in Mexico City proper. Got it. And, and, and uh, you're also running drone.vc and Neuron. So were you, were you working on all these three different VC uh, vehicles at the same time? Generally, no, they were pretty much sequential. So okay. I did Mexican VC first and we, we focused on that for about a year and a half, at which point, um, the next tranche of investments we, we figured would actually be better done in conjunction with 500 startups. So that became 500 Mexico, which became 500 LATAM. Um, and so it, it's still operating to this day down there in the, uh, in the facilities we helped stand up in Mexico City. Um, so that's what that evolved into. And then uh, it was uh, a few years after that that I started Drone VC because I perceived that there were a lot of really interesting uh, seed stage drone companies looking at things other than consumer drone photography and videography, which uh, is a very crowded space. Um, and the noise that was being made around consumer drone videography and photography was, was kind of crowding out and drowning out some of the commercial drone opportunities that were, that were there. And so I perceived that there was um, an underinvestment that was that was happening in some of those areas and the potential to get in on the ground floor with uh, with a number of promising companies. And so uh, I, I created what I believe is the world's first structured vehicle for investing in drone companies called drone.vc and did okay. that as a angelist syndicate and made a number of investments out of there. And, you know, most of those companies are still running and have raised substantial up rounds in their series A's. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you invested uh, in, into more than 60 startups. So, so are you a sector agnostic or, or, or do, you, do you still focus on, uh, on, a, on a, a certain segment of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of a market? So there's a number of different markets that I like to invest in. Um, generally speaking, I shy away from areas where there's a lot of existing investment activity. Um, so, for instance, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of noise around blockchain, Bitcoin, ICOs, crypto, all that. Um, right. it, and I've, I, I'll be honest, I've run away screaming from all of that. Um, and it's not because I think there's fundamentally no value there or couldn't be anything interesting that happens there, but rather that the amount of attention that's being spent by the overall investment uh, market proportional to the uh, amount of actual value uh, that's there is, is out of whack. So I, I like to be on the other side of things. Warren Buffett calls this value investing, where right. you yourself put in the time to evaluate 
what you believe a given market or a company ought to be worth, and then you contrast that with how the market is currently valuing it. Um, and you ask yourself the question, do I feel like, based on fundamentals, that the market has undervalued or overvalued this thing? And if you believe that the market has undervalued a certain economic opportunity, like, for instance, Mexican startups, and you're willing to be patient to be right, um, that, that part's really critical, that, then, you, that, then you buy into that market, you invest in that market, and, and you just have the patience to hold it out and eventually be proven right by the market. Got it. And uh, and, and, uh, uh, and do, you, do you focus on the team or, or the problem and or, or you know market size? Uh, what what make what what is your single uh, biggest contributor to you know uh, investing into into a startup? So I would say probably my it, it's going to be a combination of all three. There's, I don't just invest on on a single uh, platform, but but I would say my big one is can I learn something really meaningful from the opportunity as presented. If, if the founder walks me through it and I'm like, aha, wow, that's really fascinating. It's uh, a set of uh, unintuitive observations that the founder had and then was able to crisply and concisely relate to me in a way that I felt educated about the opportunity. Um, that, that generally pattern matches to to the sort of thing I want to invest in. And part of that is because you need to have a founder who sees something that the rest of the market doesn't yet, um, but will eventually. And somebody who's capable of getting other people excited about that vision, not just you, but uh, potential other investors, potential hires, uh, retaining current employees uh, and, and other uh, partners and ultimately customers as well, right? They, they need to be able to excite all those people with their vision. Um, and, and the vision needs to be something more than we're going to build a very valuable company. Like that, that's, that's not really a vision, right? <laughs> it's a vision is uh, what is the delta between what the world would be without this company and what the world will be with this company, you know, if the company comes to fruition. And so I, I really value a, a founder who has got a clear narrative for that and a plausible shot at, uh, at, at, at achieving that narrative. Interesting. Interesting. So, so, so you know, you you went on a pair Ohana, which which got sold to uh, to Facebook. So, uh, um, so can can you talk a little bit about uh, what made you start Ohana, and, and was it an incubator that you were working on? It was effectively an incubator. So I, I named the company, the, the, the corporate vehicle was actually called Gaston Labs. And the reason why it had that name was uh, that was my best friend's middle name. And I wanted to make sure that he would join me for it. So I figured putting his name on the company would be a surefire way of getting him to commit. <laughs> Maybe a cheap trick, but uh, it works for law firms, right? So it, it actually worked reasonably well in, in this case as well. So it was, um, it was him, he's, he's very technical, myself. Uh, we, we had this wonderful uh, graphic designer from the Bay Area as well, uh, Tamako, and then we had this uh, very energetic marketing intern, Sam, who joined us as well. Uh, we explored a bunch of different concepts, and the one that we decided to uh, really run with was around helping parents securely share photos and videos of their young children with uh, extended family. Because we noticed that new parents were taking a huge amount of media with their phone that uh, at the time was never leaving their phone. And they had a very eager audience of uh, aunts, uncles, grand grandmothers, grandfathers, uh, and cousins who, who wanted to consume that media, but had no way to actually uh, get access to it. Okay, so it's basically sharing 
pictures of children to uh, to parents and grandparents. That's uh, yeah, uh, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a fair summary. Um, so yeah, that that product was called Ohana, which is the Hawaiian word for family. Uh, as anyone who's seen Disney's Lilo and Stitch would know. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and, and that sold pretty early to Facebook. Facebook was in the middle of uh, a, a big sprint to try and bring on board more engineering and product talent, particularly folks who had thought a lot about photos and photo sharing. Got it. And, and, and you, you had a stint in Google and Facebook uh, for, for product management roles. And, uh, uh, and yeah, and, what, and then, you know, what made you, what made, made you start your, 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 your latest company, which is Midquarter? Yeah, so a mix of things. I, I, I had a great time at Facebook. I had a great time at Google. Uh, I would certainly recommend to anyone listening to this podcast that if you have an offer to go and work for either company um, and, and you haven't yet, uh, to, to give it a shot. Um, there's a lot that you can learn in those environments that you can't learn at a startup. And yeah. conversely, there's a lot that you can learn at a startup that you're going to have a really hard time learning at a big company. So I think uh, some people sort of view the world very naively as being in two buckets, that either you're a small company person, you're an entrepreneur, or you're a big company person, you're, you're a corporate type. And if you transition from one to the other, it's sort of like a one-way thing. And you're sort of, you're, if, if you're going from entrepreneurship to a big company, you're selling out and like giving up on entrepreneurship. Um, and if you leave a big company to go do a startup, then you've become a startup person or you couldn't cut it in the corporate world, right? And so there's, um, there's sort of these, these very uh, naive ways of looking at those transitions. But truth be told, both environments have a lot to offer. And I've, I've watched with some admiration uh, people who have bounced back and forth between those environments, you know, taking their learning from one environment to the other. So you take a look at... Um, uh, Brett, for instance, Brett Taylor, who was uh, an APM at Google, helped work on the APIs for Google Maps, uh, quit to go and do friend feed. Facebook acquired friend feed. He became the CTO of Facebook for a while, quit to go and start the company Quip. And now Salesforce acquired Quip for like north of $100 million. And now he's the chief product officer for Salesforce, right? So that, that's an example of somebody. It'd be really hard to look at a career like that and say, what a loser. He couldn't cut it in either environment, right? <laughs> um, but, but, but rather, you know, Brett, Brett was, did a superb job of uh, taking learnings from one environment and uh, applying them to another environment and that giving him skills that nobody else in that environment really had. Got it. And, and, and uh, you know, you, you, you were leading products and uh, you were also focused on, on, on drones for in, in Google where you, uh, you created commercial drone trainings uh, a part of the certification. So, uh, so you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about you or your product management roles and in Google? Sure. The the drone thing, it's sort of funny. It was a, it was an on the side kind of a twenty percent thing. Um, okay. Just I noticed that Google was doing a lot with drones and didn't have any sort of systematic way of uh, giving people Part One Hundred Seven commercial drone certification. So I put together that training program and put together a physical space that people who worked at Google could use to uh, work on work on their drones. My um, my day job for Google started off as being responsible for building from the ground up a new research and development team to look at new ways of getting the world online. Um, so that's kind of what I was, I was mostly brought into Google to do. So I built up that uh, organization called the Rapid Rollout Lab. And we came up with a lot of really cool stuff uh, that, that was used then as part of Google Fiber. 
and also uh, for some of our connectivity projects uh, around the world. Uh, I, I then after that went over to Verily, formerly known as Google Life Sciences, so it's a different branch of Alphabet, uh, to help them build up their uh, product management org and to build a product plan around cardiology and medication adherence. Uh, and then I spent uh, a year and a half uh, building a new product organization in the data center software team. Uh, and that covered three different offices and about 130 engineers uh, spread across the U.S. Okay, uh, so you, you know you are a successful stint at Google. So, uh, so what made you made you start uh, uh, working on MedCarter? Yeah, so I, I think for me it was a mixture of I, I had been at Google at that point for four and a half years, which you know in Silicon Valley is like you know forever. Right? <laughs> um, so I I think part of where you know, how I self-identify is somebody who's relatively dynamic, who likes tackling uh, new challenges and new problems. And one of the reasons why, why, why Google was able to keep me as long as they, they were was that I got to work on a number of wildly different problems, um, which was a lot of fun. But then part of where that goes to just from my own personality is wanting to work in uh, different company size environments as well. And it had been a while at that point, especially given that I'd come to Google directly from Facebook, uh, since I'd been kind of back in startup land. And so I was, I was kind of missing being able to work at that sort of speed. Um, one of the uh, superpowers you get at a big company is that there are a huge number of resources that are available for you to go and, and wield. And that's really exciting. Uh, one of the downsides is there are often a lot of processes for uh, exercising those resources that mean that uh, your actual day-by-day -day forward progress on things can be uh, relatively slow moving. Um, so it's, uh, it's sort of like being on a really big ship, right? You're, you're moving a lot of stuff. And so if you're willing to deal with the fact that um, the, the ship is moving pretty slow and it doesn't turn very fast, um, you, you, can, you can get a lot done. But then there's there's a very different temperament where you're you're in maybe a, a small motorboat, right? And the, there's a lot less that's there, but you can go a lot faster. You can you can pivot and turn a lot more nimbly, uh, and that's exciting too for different reasons. So without sort of wanting to praise one or diss the other, I, I think they're both very interesting vehicles. And in the case of MedQuarter, I saw that there was a real need that the Google actually probably wasn't in a good position to pioneer for a number of different reasons, but that uh, a thoughtfully created startup could be able to move really fast to help empower patients and their families. And that's why, that's why I felt like it would be a good idea to uh, start MedQuarter as an independent entity uh, versus trying to start it as a project within Google. Got it. So, um, so, so is MedCorder about recording conversations of, 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 with patients and, and with doctors? Is that uh, how it is to, to record it and, and then transcribe it for other family members? That's exactly what the product does today. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward product. You create a chat room, you invite in people who you want to give access to that information. Uh, in that chat room, you can put text just like a regular chat room. You can share pictures, share videos, but sort of the first class functionality that we have is around recording a conversation between people, generally between a, a doctor or other medical professional and a patient. And then as you noted, we uh, then automatically transcribe that conversation and put that in line to the chat room. So that's what the, that's what the product is today. Very simple. We have a larger vision for where do we want this product to go? What do we think 
think it could become and how do we think it could transform healthcare. But at the, at the, at the core of it, it's really about empowering a patient to, with the doctor's permission, uh, record the conversation so that the patient and their family can come back to what the physician said, better understand it, better internalize the directions that the uh, physician has given for their care, better adhere to that, and thus get to a better outcome. I mean, we know today that most of what a physician relates to a patient is not understood and retained uh, by a patient. So that's compounded when you get um, family in the mix and they ask, like, so dad, can you tell me what happened at the doctor's meeting? What did the doctor say? It's like, oh, doctor said I'm fine, basically. Right. It's like, well, uh, yeah. Did they say anything more than that? Do you have any more detail? Right. Um, so, so family members are often very hungry for that detail to be able to help the patient, to help the patient make good decisions and to uh, help adhere to the, the doctor's wishes for the recovery for the patient. But they can't do that if they're just relying on the patient's own interpretation and notes. And in most current medical systems, the extended family doesn't get access to the the full content of the consultation and recording. So we wanted to enable that. We wanted to empower patients to be able to bridge the formal care teams, the medical professionals that are looking after them with the so-called informal care teams or non-licensed medical professionals who are looking after them like spouses, parents, uh, adult children, siblings, et cetera. Got it. And, and I believe that there are other competitors also in the, in the, in the same category, like wealthy, king care, outpatient, or, or are you the only uh, company who's trying to solve the, the same problem uh, of, of recording the conversation? So there's a, there are a number of other companies that are focused on this problem from the physician's perspective. So have the doctor bring in a, a microphone, record the consultation, and then produce uh, notes for an electronic medical record. Um, so there, there's uh, about four or five different companies that are that are doing that via various approaches. There's nobody else who's really just focused on trying to help the patient get the most out of the consult and focused on getting the patient to install the app and bring their phone with this app installed into the consultation and get permission to record. So um, there's, there's a lot of companies that are adjacent to what we're doing, but there's actually nobody else in the market today who's just focused on helping the patient get the most out of the consultation. Okay, and and what what are your acquisition channels? You know, how how do you how are you making sure that you your user base is is growing? So right now, that's not my primary focus because we have enough evidence that the the product is going to need a bit more work to get to the point where we can be confident that most people who install the app end up becoming active users. The good news is that we've got a bunch of very strong hunches as to what will solve that. We've designed that. We've completed most of the engineering for that, and we should have those new versions available over the coming weeks. Once we get to a point where we're pretty convinced that a healthy percentage of people who install the app go on to become active users of the app, then we're going to push much more on the channel strategy side of things. For channel strategy, there's a, a couple different directions that we could go, but my hunch is where we want to push hardest. It's actually not on the patient or the doctor directly. It's the patient's extended family, um, particularly if they have remote adult children who wish they could be there, who wish there was more that they could do to help 
be in the loop about what's going on with a patient. So the way that we're building things out is with the persona of what we call a trailblazer. And this is the first person in the family who is responsible for setting up the care room, pulling everybody in, uh, and explaining to the family what this app is, what it does, and, and set expectations around it. And, and we're anticipating that in many cases, most cases even, the trailblazer is not going to be the patient, right? So it might yeah. be uh, the technically sophisticated remote adult child, for instance, right? right. So. If we can go after them, we think that'll be really powerful because there are actually very few services that are trying to target those folks. They really want to be found. They want to know what they can do to be useful, how they can participate, and are frustrated that there's not much for them today. So if we could be the useful thing that they could do, the contribution that they could make to the care for the patient, I, I think we'll, we'll get a very warm reception from them. Got it. And, uh, and so, so you are still looking at, at uh, working on, on the product and uh, once, once you figure that out, so are, are you going to focus on the revenue model or have you, have you figured that out right now? Yeah, so I think the sequencing for us is right now we're in what I would call the product phase where we get to a confidence level that people, like I mentioned, who install the app are going to become active, regular users of the app. Um, that's that's obviously going to continue indefinitely. We never get done that phase, but it's just a question of like, where is my primary focus? Right now that's there. The next phase after that is going to be an acquisition phase where we focus on exploring a bunch of different channels for getting in the hands of patients and their families, um, which strategies are going to work cost effectively to go and acquire new active users. I don't really care about installs. I care about active users of the app. Um, at the point that we get a model and we find find a, a number of different channels where we can systematically acquire users at reasonable cost. There are a number of very exciting opportunities for monetization. I think one of the big classes of opportunities that are here are what I call data concierge services, where the payer is not even necessarily the patient, but is the patient's family. So again, the you know, remote adult child, the, the sibling who wishes they could do more to help may be willing to throw some money at the problem of helping the patient gather all the relevant information about their condition, uh, to help the patient walk through their different medical options that are forthcoming, to understand uh, the cost of some of these uh, procedures and ways to um, minimize cost and minimize risk that are available to them. There's a lot of different ways that we can help patients other than uh, providing medical care or medical advice per se. We ourselves are never going to provide medical care or medical advice, um, but there, we can help with a lot of the other aspects of what's going on with the patient. Got it. And, and uh, you know, you've, you've uh, raised uh, $2.5 million from Future Ventures. So, so are you looking at expanding your, your team uh, and, and, you know, what, what would be uh, the money used for? Yeah, so it's going to be used for a mixture of talent. And that's not just employees. That's also what in Google speak we call TVCs or temps, vendors, and contractors. Okay. Um, but it's also going to be used for a number of these different channel explorations. Um, so the point we want to be at when we raise the next round is to have clarity that the product that we've created is definitely something that's useful and it's useful for most people who are in the market and it's a large market of people who want 
uh, to have their consults recorded. A study in the UK showed that more than two-thirds of patients who are out there today wished they could have access to a recording of their consultations. So we think this is not really a, a, a niche need, but proving that out will be an important component. And the other component of where we want to be at, at the point that we raise our next round, is confidence around which channels work for, for, for acquisition. In terms of team size, one of the things that I mentioned that there are different things you can learn at startups and at big companies. When I was doing my first startup, a lot of the mentality around not just my own startup, but the other people who were doing startups was the way that you get things done is you hire people to do those things. And then I saw at both Facebook and Google how powerful it was to be able to leverage a specialist talent and to use temps vendors and contractors to explore uh, different market possibilities. So that's something that we've actually been leveraging pretty heavily already. So we've got only three people who are technically full-time employees of the company. We've got another three people who are full-time contractors and another three or four people who are part-time contractors for the company. And I would expect that kind of ratio to continue as we grow the company. So even though we've got a, a bunch of cash in the bank, I think it'd be pretty foolish to just go out and do a hiring blitz and to try and be at like 10 full-time people by the end of the year. We could afford to do that, but I don't think it would actually best serve the company. The goal of the company is not to have lots of employees. The goal of the company is to de-risk the things that it would take to get us to the next phase of maturity in understanding what the needed product is and understanding what the uh, effective channels are for getting this in people's hands. Got it. And, uh, and and when it comes to talent, you know, uh, especially especially in the Silicon Valley and US, uh, there the, uh, there's a lot of technical talent who can go to uh, go and work in Facebooks and Google. Um, you know, uh, uh, what 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 uh, yeah, you know what are you looking for uh, for a uh, for an engineer who could join a a, a, a high growth startup, but uh, which is not as big as Facebook, or Google, and uh, you know, what are you looking for for somebody in the first 20 or 30 hires? Yeah, so what, what we're looking for in an early stage, and I think this is true of a lot of early stage companies, are, are people who bring some amount of specialized talent to bear, but are, are um, mostly just great generalists um, because the needs of the company are going to be evolving pretty quickly. And we're going to we're going to need people who can evolve with the company and pivot with us. So this is why, for instance, we have like an app install consultant who's really good at doing Facebook and Instagram campaigns to get apps in front of people. We don't need to hire that person full time right now. And that may or may not turn out to be a really effective channel for us. And so we can, uh -huh. we can explore that with, with, with TVC effort. So the, the kinds of people who we're, we're looking for right now for full-time employment are people who uh, can work in an environment that has the level of uncertainty that um, one gets with, with a startup where it's not deeply distressing to them if we need to change direction on things. Um, there's some temperament, there's some personality types for which that's uh, that, that's a non-starter. That's not appropriate. It'll, it just deeply grates on them to, uh, to be put in that kind of a position. Um, so, so somebody where that's exciting, uh, where the idea of being able to move very fast um, is, is exciting is certainly at, at, at Facebook and, and Google, it's become increasingly difficult for people to very quickly 
conceive of new product functionality and deploy it to the market. Um, so being at a being at a startup gives you a chance to be much closer to the end customer, to literally go and call customers on the phone, to go and um, ship new features on a, on a weekly basis. Um, we're doing new production pushes. And so I think that's that's really exciting to, uh, to a certain class of, of engineer. And to get to put their fingerprints all over it. I mean, if, if you go and join uh, Google, even as an engineer with you know, three or four years of market experience, um, you're probably going to get put on a pretty big pre-existing team and maybe get lucky and, and find some you know, random interesting project. Um, but uh, the AdSense team needs a lot of engineers and the YouTube team needs a lot of engineers. And a lot of the work that happens there um, is, starts off uh, in, in their lower levels, you know, really, in the, really in the weeds, right? Now, on the one side, uh, on the one hand, you're working with enormous N, right? So even if you only make like a half percent difference in activations, you're talking about like millions and millions of people. Um, and so that's really exciting. On the other hand, what the product is, is probably not something that you're going to redefine. You're probably not going to join YouTube three, four years after college and redefine what YouTube means as a brand and what the experience of YouTube is, right? Uh, whereas if you join an early stage company, you have a chance to really put your fingerprints all over it. And with the finished product say, this is, this is meaningfully different because of my contribution than what it would have been uh, without me. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Uh, um, so, uh, so David, you 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 founded uh, companies. You uh, you've been an uh, angel investor. You also founded uh, nonprofits, and I also realized that you're a certified rescue uh, a scuba diver and uh, and uh, fixed wing pilot, and also a commercial drone operator. Uh, so, so what is your secret to 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 learn about so many so many different things? Or, or, or uh, you know, along with your job and yeah, with so many things you've done. So I. I think there's two main guideposts that I use for my time and my career decisions. And one is, am I learning? And the other is, am I having impact? And, yeah. and I think people who optimize for those tend to have really interesting careers. People who optimize for what's going to look good on my resume, uh, how do I make as much money as possible uh, in, in, in my very next gig, um, how do I have a title that sounds really important? People who focus on that as a goal tend to have much less exciting careers because they're not actually being true to their own interest and they're not continuously growing their knowledge base and, and set of things that they know about. I, I think if you come at things saying, hey, um, the world is a large, complex and interesting place and most stuff that happens in most places in the world, I, I'm completely naive and ignorant about and instead of being scary, that's really exciting because it means that I will never finish knowing things, right? There, there, <laughs> you, you'll never get to the point where you just know everything and now you're bored, right? Uh, right? So there's always some area to learn about. And what can be fun is instead of doing what everyone else is doing and just learning about what the hot new technology or market is this week, instead, you sort of reason from your own first principles about what, what must be high impact, what must be interesting. So one example of this is an exploration that I did last year where I was trying to reason from first principles about large markets that are currently being ignored by Silicon Valley. And it landed on metallurgy because metals are an incredibly important part 
of what makes the world go round. No doubt if you look around in the room that you're in right now, you see all sorts of very different things that are all made with metal. Um, and we actually define human civilization by the kinds of metals that those civilizations were able to create. Uh, and yet very little is going into the field today. You take a look at how the field writ large has evolved since the 60s and plastics or polymer science took most of the air out of the room, right? If you were a budding material scientist in, in the 60s or 70s, you know, somebody whispered plastics into your ear and, and you, you went off to, to study plastics and that's left the field of metallurgy kind of abandoned. So it, it turned out that... I was able to learn a fair amount of pretty exciting material uh, in the metallurgical space and get to know a bunch of interesting metallurgists just, just by going and poking at that. So one, one cool tip that I want to leave for your listeners here, uh, and this, this sounds hilariously basic, but is actually very unusual, is that anytime you want to learn about a new field, go and get an introductory textbook on it. And almost nobody does this. This is really funny, right? Because you walk around a modern knowledge workplace, like a place like Google or Facebook, you walk past people's desks. And a lot of what people are doing is what I would call performative work. You know, so if they're a programmer, they have their screens open and they've got a lot of code on them, right? If they're uh, in marketing, they've got design proofs that are in front of them. If they're a manager, they probably have their email and calendar open or going through those. And like, th those are all very interesting and those are putatively people's day jobs. But people also as professionals, and this is systematic uh, across the industry, underinvest in leveling themselves up in taking the thing that they're really good at and getting better at that or in learning about uh, new interesting related fields and so the, the result of that is you what you don't see when you're walking through a workplace is people reading books is people going and and reading white papers and journal articles and you know technical magazines um, when you do see somebody doing that I can almost guarantee you that that person's going to be, you know, 10x plus the level of uh, IP generation of any of the people who, who are around them. So whenever I'm curious about a field, I'll go and get the introductory textbook. So I did that for metallurgy, for instance. I did that for cardiology. These were fields I knew absolutely nothing about. And I was able to um, at least get to a, a layman's uh, understanding and, and basic level of, of parlance in those fields uh, by going through those. And it's just, it's such an underappreciated technique, like buy a book. <laughs> oh, interesting. Right. And, 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 and do, do you set a time frame that you're going to, uh, you know, learn about, about a project for three, four months and then, uh, then leave it at that because, uh, uh, you know, you've done so many different, different things uh, in your career. So I, I, I don't have as firm a structure as that around things. Um, rather, it's just uh, as things catch my interest, catch my fancy, uh, I'll think about whether it merits my time to go and dig into that more. Um, and then as long as that continues to be uh, fruitful and makes sense, I'll, I'll continue to pursue it. And then if at some point it doesn't make sense to keep pulling at that, um, then I'll stop doing that. So it's a little bit more responsive and reactive um, than it is structured like, oh, I'm going to spend three months learning this thing. Okay. Got it. Very, very, very interesting. So uh, let, let's quickly do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Um, so I would say for, for people who are getting into entrepreneurship, 
Um, the Lean Startup by Eric Ries is, is a great um, book of kind of first principles around entrepreneurship and learning really quickly. Um, in, in terms of high-level principles, I, I'm actually in the middle of reading uh, Ray Dalio's Life and Work Principles, and yeah. I really like the mindfulness that that brings to decision quality. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually, even at 40 now with, with my, the career that I've had behind me, I'm just now starting to learn and think about decision quality as a thing. And uh, I, I find that uh, appalling. So I think more people should, should be framing their, their lives, not just their businesses, in terms of uh, what their principles are and evaluating their own decision quality. Interesting. And, uh, well, and you, I really wish somebody had walked me through that in my early 20s. <laughs> I would have made better decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we, I'll put that in the show notes. And again, you know, if you could go back in time when you started working uh, on, on your first business uh, or, or into startups, what is the one thing you would have focused on? Uh, the user. I mean, <laughs> when I was starting my very first company, I, I, I wish somebody had said to me in plain terms, uh, nobody cares how slick the technology is. Uh, people only care about their own problems. Make sure that you really understand what problems are out there and focus on solving them instead of focusing on coming up with a neat technology and then trying to get people to use it. Okay. And uh, what, what's your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? So I'm a big fan of Figma. So we've been using Figma for all of our front-end designs. So this is sort of the next evolution of the natural next step evolution for, um, for Sketch and the like. So the, the idea is that it's a browser-based web tool that your designers can use to put together pixel-perfect displays of each of the views in your application. And then your front-end engineers, whether they're working on the web version, the Android version, the iOS version, can see exactly the layout that, that's there. And Figma will even emit uh, exactly the layout code that's needed on Objective-C or Swift or Java or CSS to lay things out precisely as the designer has intended. And so that, that ability to uh, comment on, to review uh, designs, to link them from uh, Trello cards um, directly uh, is, is pretty powerful. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, what is the best way people can reach out to you and, and know more about uh, MedCorder? Sure. So we, our website's just at medquarter.com. You can Google search for medquarter. That's M-E-D-C-O-R-D-E-R. Uh, if you want to reach me personally, I'm david at medquarter.com. Uh, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, Medquarter's got a Twitter account and it's got a Facebook account. And we're also present on LinkedIn. So if you want to find us in any of those places, we are just medquarter. Met Carter, Carter. Uh, thank you, David, for coming on to the show. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking to you and best of luck for Met Carter. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.